It's an invention, you know, retirement as we know is an invention, it was an economic invention and what you contain in the thumbnail on your finger would change the life of a young entrepreneur in Senegal who's just trying to make a, a start in a small business yeah. and it grieves oh. me to see the waste. So we need to recover this, I think. Welcome, everybody. This is Simon Gilbert with Inspired. I am back uh, with another fantastic guest. Inspired is all about telling stories of overcoming faith, of the nitty grittiness of how that is outworked through life sucker punches, different challenges. I've got loads of mates from so many different sort of career paths. And uh, this week we've got Trevor Waldor. I'm super excited. Trevor is a sort of leadership guru. He's an executive coach. He's an author. He's the founder of Emerging Leaders, although he's passed that on. He's all about legacy. Uh, he talks about this um, the wisdom circle of investing in those who are maturing. I guess that would be me. Trevor's older than me, a few generations up, I think. Uh, to become leaders for the youth and investing in the youth to set their life compass, to aspire to becoming leaders, that sort of virtuous circle, all in in the service of leading, loving, and leaving a legacy. So we're gonna get into all that stuff, but uh, Trevor, really great to have you, welcome. Great, well, great to be with you, Simon. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, well, I'm really excited about this. Uh, listen, I know virtually nothing about your background, so let's dig into that a bit, go for it. Yes, born North London, moved to Essex when I was about 18 months. My dad was one of the first engineers brought in to open nuclear power. Mm -hmm. So out on the East Coast. So um, we moved into the absolute wilds of Essex and then into a local town called Malden. A mixed childhood, I would say. It kind of seemed very happy while we were out in the middle of nowhere. But as I got older, I was the youngest of four. The tensions in the home were getting greater and greater. So how do I describe it? It didn't feel safe, I think is the nicest way of putting it. I, I had a very angry dad. Right. Um, that's how I experienced him. Growing up, and it, it got so bad, my uh, my older son was kicked out of home at fifteen. So it was it was a it felt pretty much like a war ground, and I was one of those kids who would lay awake at night wondering which parent would not be there in the morning because right. of listening to them arguing. Um, uh, amazingly, they they never did separate, but it was it was that kind of feeling of unsafety, of anger. Um, so it, it was m mixed. So I had some very rich and lovely experiences and some actually pretty traumatic experiences all, all mixed in. And did faith come in at an early age for you? Um, not, not in any obvious sense. We went to Sunday school when I was a younger kid and I discovered only in adult life that my mum had had some kind of conversion experience after I was born. Right. But my dad was a very ardent atheist, so it's like there was no discussion at mm -hmm. all. And if you ever raised the subject, he would just lambast about the hypocrisy of Christians. And so, anyways, that was early childhood. But I stopped as I came into teenage because um, I developed a new religion, and it was called cycle racing. Right. So my my teenage years were invested in cycle racing, and it truly was my religion. Every waking hour was spent either racing or thinking about it or training for it. And, um, you know, school was something you had to go to in order to get back out on the bike training. So that absorbed my world fully. Um, so no, no church, no nothing. Did you reach any sort of competitive level? Yeah, I did. I think I was probably in the top 16 in the country at that time. But it was one of those things also, you know, very quickly in cycling terms that many are called, but few are chosen. You could tell the people that however hard you tried, 
they were always going to be better. They just had that X factor that you didn't have. Mm -hmm. And I think spiritually there was something in that as well is um, I didn't like who I was becoming. And as I looked at the seniors that I was racing with, I didn't like who they were becoming either. Hmm. I think it was quite shocking for me to see what kind of person that people were becoming in order to uh, excel at the top levels of sport. I don't know what it was, but I do remember for some reason I went and picked up a Gideon's Bible, the one that you know used to be given when you started secondary school, and I picked it up for some reason. I went and found it, and I flicked through that where to find help when, and I remember reading something about you know when your sins are like scarlet i'll make them as white as star and I, I keep thinking why why was i looking for that why was i reading that i don't really know um and then a bit later on a girl that i really fancied invited me to a thing called saturday session which was uh, you did sport in the afternoon and then she said there would be some musicians and some uh, a speaker in the evening and because i fancied her i went along that was the <laughs> only reason so in the evening, after all the sports, it was the first time I heard what was to be a, a life-changing message. So was, the preacher was a guy called Billy Strachan, who some people of my age might remember. And I heard this message, and I think the message I heard was quite foundational for the rest of my life, because I didn't hear a message about judgment and sin and condemnation or anything like that. I heard a message of him telling stories of transformation, hmm. of people who'd come to the Jesus and changed the world, basically. So I became a Christian, and at the end, you know, there was an invitation to respond. I don't really know what I was responding to, but I went up and, uh, you know, I prayed the prayer, whatever the prayer was, and I went up and I received my little copy of Journey Into Life, which was the standard offer in those days, because I wanted that, that was that deep sense, and I now realize that that is hardwired into the teenage brain, that you want to make a difference. And, and that was me, and I, that's what I responded to. But what was what was most I know, humorous really is I didn't know what to do next. Hmm. I, I, it's like, what do you do now? Because I wasn't a church person. It's like, well, what do you do? And I remember talking to someone. They said, oh, well, you should go to church now. So that was probably the the first and fundamental shock in the journey. I'd come to this real sense of living, dynamic faith that was on offer and, and responded to this new journey. And then I went to a church and I just thought, oh my goodness. And it was an utter time warp. Couldn't believe it. Hmm. Just seemed so, I don't know what it was, Victorian. It was just what they were singing, what they were saying. And I, I met some other young people. I thought, you are not for real. So it was a very contrasting experience. And, and I was sitting there thinking, this is not what I signed up for. Is this what this is? Because the two don't match. And I was thinking, I was on the point of giving up. And the, the place that put on the event that I was converted at put on another event a year later. And I invited some of my friends and, and they came and they went forward and made a declaration of faith that evening. And they said to me, we want to go whoever put this event on. So I actually gave me an out to get out of the church I was in and go into this other church. So we did, and, and they had a brilliant youth group, and that was great for a while. The youth were, group was vibrant and lots of opportunity, but I slowly began to realize that most of them were there f to find a, a girlfriend or boyfriend. <laughs> and I, I reached a place of what I call honest backsliding. Like, I, I just reached a place of like, look, what I signed up for, what I 
it was about life. That was about the whole of my life. And this is not a hobby for me. I don't need to be here. Mm. And I, I honestly was like, I need to know, is this real? Is this for real? Because if it is, it, sh it demands my all. It's mm. like I'm all in. But if it isn't, I just do not want to be part of this. And it's been a struggle in my whole life. My whole life, I have just never got on with the culture of church. And that probably leads to some of the things I did later on. But um, I, I struggled. And um, it, it hit a period where it kind of came to a big crunch because I failed my A-levels. Mm -hmm. And the um, whole story behind that. But it was the most shaming experience that I'd ever had. And so the following months were just like, uh, how do you begin to rebuild a life when you thought you were going to go and do one thing and, and there's nothing there? So that was a really, really difficult few months mm -hmm. going to a school reunion. And I met, there was a girl in my class who'd become a Christian. And I remember talking with her and there was something about her that reminded me of what I'd known in the past the good bit of my faith. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of made me, I don't know what it was, but suddenly it, it's like the road shifted and a new path. And I literally became incredibly hungry for, for a spiritual renewal direction. I didn't know what it meant or how that would work out. And then this amazing thing happened. It was in the January and I went to a Saturday night thing where these Christian bands were playing. I remember it was at the end, people were hanging around and meeting with another guy. Um, and I knew the youth leader, but I didn't know him well, but you know, I knew who he was. And then he called me over and he said, look, what are you doing next weekend? I said, well, I'm not doing anything. And he said, for the church to invest in 12 young people to go away and invest in the future leadership of the church. Hmm. Well, I didn't really know what leadership was or anything. He offered the place because the guy he was talking to had just dropped out so he can't go and he turned and he saw me and thought i wonder if trevor would like to go and that invitation changed my life literally so i went away on this leadership weekend and i always say two things happened that weekend one was i was converted to leadership because mm -hmm. everything was about leadership that weekend and i I, I didn't even know what the word leadership meant, but as they, they were talking about it and looking at stories, I just, I was totally grasped by the, the ability of leadership to change the world. Mm -hmm. So that happened that weekend. But the other thing that happened that weekend is um, I would say that God pinned me to the wall. In the very last session, the guy did a session on the whole issue of spiritual leadership was actually about self-emptying and service, not ego mm -hmm. and up. And um, when I look back, the message was incredibly simple. It looked at the humiliation of Christ and Philippians 2 and kind of the way up is down. And, and, and at the end, right at the end of the session and, and prayed end of the session, I couldn't move. I just couldn't move physically. I couldn't move. And I could watch everyone around me talking and begin to get up and chatting you to answer this question are you willing to give me your whole life whatever that means and i was just like that is like the biggest question in my life and i remember saying to god i will answer that question before i go to sleep tonight i promise <laughs> and at that point my energy came back and i was able to get up and move but it was it was quite an encounter which i hadn't had before and i haven't had one like that since and i did i stayed up I, late into the night 
kneeling by my bed and reading my notes and then in the end I just got down on my knees and said yes Lord you know I'm in and it's like the way I remember describing it to one I said to him it said it's like I can't stop growing hmm. everything changed it's like my uh, I, I did A-level English in eight months because I'd always wanted to do English and I hadn't done it. I studied, I got it in eight months. And, and I, I, by that summer, I was working for Cape and Ray Missionary Fellowship in, in Europe, in Austria. And my whole life direction had changed. And it, it had felt like, at that time, the call of God on my life. Mm. Um, so it always felt like a calling. So you ended up going into church leadership. You said you had a, a sort of tricky relationship with church your whole life. So what did that look like? So when I was working with um, Capri Mission Fellowship in Austria, I was invited back to go work for a second year. And I, it felt like in those days, if God called you, you had two choices. One was to either church or the other was the mission field. And I thought, well, I've tried the, the kind of mission field and I just, uh, for a number of reasons, which I'm not sure, thought, no, well, I'll stay in the UK. I went to Bible college here after doing a degree in education. And it's like, well, the next step is church. And I was actually invited by Eddie Vass, who'd run that weekend, to come and be an assistant in his church. So when I finished Bible college, I just got married and we went there full of kind of hope and aspiration and naivety into that. And I somehow thought that leading a church would be better than going to a church. But it, it was just the first, you know, where do I begin? Uh, stories of underlying abuse going on in leadership in the congregation and people blocking things. And uh, I remember being in one church that I was leading, being threatened by one guy, being taken to law if I dared move communion into the family service and oh, power struggles. And it's like, here is this naive kid that just wanted to change the world mm -hmm. coming into with utter naivety the inner politics and power struggles of religion. And I, I end up making myself ill, not in the first church. I, I moved on from that, went to another church in Essex, just ground myself down, really. Um, but in the, in, the, in the stopping, I thought I want to be in a team ministry. And I, I threw a, a whole series of events found myself on a very large church on the South Coast, city centre church, working actually with a great team of people, but still struggling with the churchiness of it. I just felt the conversation was unreal. I, I've always, since teenage, had a fascination in transformation. How do people change? What does it look, how does that happen? So studied psychology, I did a master's in counselling psychology and um, and couldn't get it as to what was happening. Because again, in those days, even talking about psychology was regarded as all to do with ego and sin. You know, so things have changed a lot. Uh, I remember our senior pastor had been on a sabbatical and he came back and he said he'd visited this place called Willow Creek Church in the States. And he said it's a church that was set up for the unchurched. And I didn't know anything about that. All I knew was, that's me. That's who I am. I want to know mm. about that. That's what I want to do. So I began to investigate, began to study, actually went out to Chicago with a, a mate and looked at it. And that led to me founding the first ever seeker-targeted church in the UK. And before it was anyone was even doing it, we, we went out there and, and gave it a go. And um, incredibly exciting days because we managed to create this place you know, my next door neighbor rolled cigarettes for British tobacco. 
<laughs> and he would always go to the pub on Sunday night. Now, we held our meet, meeting, presentation, whatever, in a hotel, and then people went in a bar afterwards and talked about the message and everything. So my neighbor would then come and sit there and listen to all this and then go back to the pub and tell his mates about what he'd heard. And it's like, that's what I wanted to create. Yeah. That, that was where I came from. I, I loved it and burnt myself out doing it. It was intense. You know, one of the hard things, you know, you look at it, something that someone's doing in America with all the resource they had behind them and we had no resource behind us. So you mm. try to run seeker services every week with dramas and music and you just like, whoa, this is intense. So I loved it and it wore me out and I just reached the place of just saying, that's the end of the road. I can't, I've kind of worked the church thing out to its logical conclusion and I, um, I stepped down and moved on. Um, so that was kind of the end of that whole chapter. And, of course, the big challenge then was, well, well what do you do with that sense of calling? Where, where do you go from here? Did you feel a, a failure in that? I didn't feel a failure because I knew I'd given it my all. I, I think it's hard because you're always comparing yourself with, quote, successful churches mm. and thinking, um, and it was it was just hard work. So I, I'm not sure whether I felt a failure. It's not what I wanted it to be because I saw the potential of it, but I also realized I, I couldn't do any more than I'd done. Hey folks, I love it, the impact of this podcast. And thank you, those of you that's spreading the news. Could I challenge all of you listening to this? Could you share this podcast with three of your mates to see if they would subscribe? It's just getting great news out there. And listen, if you want to receive a weekly WhatsApp ping, just one ping to make it easy for you to share with other people, because often I listen to podcasts and think, oh, that's brilliant, but I find it hard to know how to share it. You can sign up at greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash WhatsApp. That's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash WhatsApp. And then you get one ping a week that you can forward to your mates. Then also, how about a, a weekly email on it? That would be greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired email. You could do that, greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired email. And uh, there are giving options there if you want to support the podcast. It's under the auspices of Great Lakes Outreach, and we're serving the poorest and hungriest country in the world in Burundi. So I'd love your support in that. Anyway, God bless you for your encouragement, support, and emails. Loving it. Now let's get back to the podcast. So you then reinvented yourself as a consultant, is that right? Yeah, so because I trained as a therapist along the way, I, I managed to work privately and for the NHS as a therapist. I was then picked up by a European consultancy and moved into the whole world of leadership development and executive coaching and, and kind of reinvented my whole CV. So I started out at the beginning. I remember I got a, offered a piece of work. I, I talk about it a bit in my latest book, but I was um, I had to go into the city to a recruitment consultant because they'd got problems and I, they wanted to know how to help their staff. So I remember meeting this guy, and it was uh, he was late for the meeting, and then he strode into the big boardroom where we were meeting, and he he didn't say sit down, he didn't offer me a tea or anything. He just sat there and he said, "Right, tell me about yourself." I remember trying to talk, and I was trying to talk about my past. I mean, I've spent this whole first career basically leading churches. And it's like, well, that doesn't sound very good in the city. Uh, so I tried to fudge it, you know, non-voluntary sector and, you know, tried to find different words. And he couldn't. 
And I was, he said, no, well, what did you actually do? And so I tried to say, well, I did this and he did that. He said, he said well, when did you get a real job? Hmm. And it's like, so I'm nearly 40 years old and I've got this guy looking at my whole f- first 20 years, looking at me like you've never had a real job. So that it sits on a part of you that feels you never had a real job because um, everybody else was doing this with their careers and that with their careers. And mine was just like different, very different than what they said. So I, I kind of realized that in the city, people don't really do God. So it was, it was a hard shift, but it was a good shift because it meant that suddenly on my CV, not suddenly, over the next few years, you know, I'd, I'd worked in with lawyers, with bankers, with power, with utility, with the national health. I'd, I'd got lots of experience in a whole new world and, and grew, grew my own business, actually. So I grew, I worked for that European consultancy, then set up my own consultancy that just focused on one-on-one and team coaching. It's called The Executive Coach. So, um, so that was kind of the next chapter. And I enjoyed the first bit because I'm kind of basically entrepreneurial. So I love setting it up and winning these clients. And I got to the point of like, okay, but where's the mission in that? Mm. And that, that I kind of felt at some level it was feeding the leadership, but it, I kind of lost that sense of mission. Yeah. Had you sort of parked Jesus for those few years? I mean, how it wasn't very integrated. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think I've ever parked Jesus. It's interesting how people perceive you over the years. I've even, you know, been divorced and remarried. I remember when I went through the separation from my wife, that people looked at me, Christians looked at me and said, oh, you must have given up on your faith. You've given up on God. Well, well, actually, the inside story was just the opposite of that, but nobody ever came and asked me, where, you know, where's your spiritual journey and all this? They just made mm. massive assumptions about it. Mm. But what I would say is I don't think I've ever parked Jesus, but I've been in this constant rethinking about, well, what does that mean? What does it really mean? Who, what does it mean to walk in this world with faith? And it just opened my eyes, you know, it opened my eyes to look at other, other faith traditions, other spiritual traditions, and, and begin to realize where there were commonalities, where sincere seekers of all faiths were actually asking the same questions that I was asking. Every faith had got its hypocrites as well as its sincere people. I began mm-hmm. to look much more deeply into what are called the mystics. And mystics are not people that are kind of in fairy land, but mystics are people who focus on their experience. And I related much more even to the Christian mystics or Sufi mystics because it's like they were talking about what does this look like in real life? What does this look like to live this and experience this on a daily basis? So I would say I didn't park Jesus, but I... I moved more and more outside of what I saw as a conventional church interpretation of Jesus. Um, and I could see more and more that one of the problems for the unchurched people that I knew is uh, they looked at what the church was packaging Jesus as and they could see through it. Mm. Yeah. And I, I could see that they could see through it and I felt what they felt. And it was like, well, a lot of my friends who got to that place just gave up on God or they were told by churches that they were backsliding and it was assumed they'd given up on God, so they gave up on God. And it's like, I don't want to take that route. 
I want to find my way through this. Yeah. I want to find out what does it mean to keep on growing in the midst of an unchurched world, in the midst of the complexities of these questions. I remember someone saying about, you know, why do you stop being in the ministry? And, and I said, well, I said, one was I was burnt out. I said, but the other issue is when you're a church leader, people expect you to stand up on a Sunday morning and preach a message of certainty. Mm -hmm. And I, the more I learned through just pastoral, you know, you do thousands of hours of pastoral counseling and learning and digging in. I said, my, I said, my problem was I, I didn't know any longer what to say. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm not saying that out of ignorance. I'm saying I studied great Christian thinkers and they all disagreed on some fundamental questions. And yet I'm meant to stand up and say, oh, the answer is definitely this or definitely that. And I think it was the unwillingness, I think, of what I experienced in church to look at paradox and unknowing and uncertainty of, as absolutely integral mm. to a growing faith rather than signs of the absence of faith. So yeah. I was finding my way, I would say through those years. That's really profound. And you talk about recovering a sense of mission. Was that the birthing of uh, emerging leaders? Is that how it's Yeah, well, out? I think it was. I'm running this company called The Executive Coach in London. I meet this friend called Ian for a cup of coffee in London one day. And Ian runs this charity that does small projects around the world. And I'm talking with Ian and just asking him to talk through what he's doing and what's really interesting and these different projects. And he talks about... Um, Zambia. And he was one of these things, he was talking about one of the slums or townships um, on the edge of Lusaka in Zambia, a place called Chihuahua. And um, he said, he was talking about the devastation of HIV AIDS. And he said, we need to set up a school for these orphans. So there was something within me that at the end of the conversation, I said, just as a matter of interest, in, in the Chihuahua, how much would it cost to set up and run a school for a year in that place? And he said it would cost £2,000, $3,000. I said, wait, you're kidding me. For £2,000, you could set up and run a whole school for a year? And he said, yeah. So I said, here it is. Because I was running my own company, I could just say, there's £2,000. I said, just begin, go for it. And um, then after Christmas following you, I said to him, I said, let me know how it's going. I said, um, and we can talk about ongoing funding if you think it's working or not. And he said, well, he said, I need to go out and have a look for myself, see if it's working. I said, great, let me know when you come back. He said, no, no, you're coming with me. Mm, crucial. Now, at that point, I'd never been to Africa at all. You know, I traveled down places, but as a tourist, the nearest I'd got to Africa was comic relief on TV, you know. Mm. And uh, I said, well, I, there's no good me coming. I, said, I don't know anything about poverty. I don't know anything about anything that you work in and he said no he said your job is to go into organizations and see if they're working isn't it i said yeah but it's a bit different to what you're talking about i've got no experience of that context he said no you're coming so that may and that was 2005 i get on an airplane and fly out to lusaka and within the day we are in chihuahua and that was a damascus road experience and you simon will know this better than most so suddenly I realized that comic relief doesn't even come close to the reality of how people have to live and survive in the mm. world. And a wonderful guy we're walking around with uh, Alfred, and they're, they're kind of defining moments. I mean, the whole thing was 
total. The feeding centres weren't working. The kids were wandering the streets. You know, there were like eight orphan kids living with one grandma because the parents had died in a house that was no bigger than my kitchen and just everywhere, utterly shocking. And yet the spirit of the people I met was profound. But I remember looking at a little girl down on the ground, scratching around. And I said to Alfred, I said, how old this little girl here? I said, how often does she get to eat? And he said to me, she probably gets a meal every two or three days. And it just blew me away. Because mm. I got two wonderful sons and they're now in their thirties. And I thought they've never missed a meal in their life ever. And here's this little girl. Uh, it just gives me goosebumps now even talking about it. And uh, it was just a profound sense of this is not okay. This is mm. not okay. So wrong. And then it's like, what, well, what can I do? Because I suddenly realized, you know, throwing money at this was not the thing. And I had grown up hearing about, therefore believing in trickle-down economics, which is you pour money into the top of the system and it trickles it down to the poorest of the poor. And I'm standing there looking and thinking, trickle-down economics is a joke, doesn't work. But I could also see that the poorest of the poor, in their own way, believed in trickle-down economics. They were waiting for the cavalry to arrive to rescue them. And I'm standing there thinking, the cavalry's not coming. Mm. They're not coming. So then I was thinking, well, the only way is that people in extreme poverty learn to lead themselves out of poverty. So that's what I, that, was, that was the first click in my head. And it's like, well, how are they going to learn? You know, because no one's going to come to Chihuahua with a leadership training program. Nobody even knows or has heard of Chihuahua. And like most of the places I went in the early years, it's like no one had even heard of those places. So it's like, well, how do you get leadership development there? And I, I don't know what it was, but something within me just thought, what if we could turn the whole justice system upside down? Because mm. juxtaposed with that is I had just been invited to Dublin to work with a corporate. And I went with two other consultants for the morning to just look at scoping the work. Uh, we got paid more in that morning for two hours conversation than most of those people in Chihuahua will ever see in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And it led to a piece of work with 14 executives at Croke Park, the big uh, stadium in, in Dublin, in the executive suite. And we were being paid top dollar, three consultants, top dollar for three days with these very senior leaders. Half of them didn't even turn up. So now we're being paid top dollar for training about six people. And, yeah. it just, and I felt sick because I just thought this is just, and I was just seeing such a waste of money in the city and in the corporate world of people that were treating leadership development like, you know, they'd gone on a wine tasting tour, you know, taking a little sip and spitting it out, whether we like it or don't like it. And, um, so that was on one side, and then I'm in Shawarma. So I just suddenly thought, what if you could bring world-class leadership development? What if I could say that the people in Shawarma have got the same quality leadership development than the young high potentials of Deutsche Bank or the Bank of England or whatever? Mm. And that was the thought that came into my head. It's like, well, what if? And I think probably most ventures start with a what if question. Yeah. So then I thought, well, how on earth do you do that? Because most leadership models these days were invented in the West in the last 50 to 80 years, probably. Most literature is written out of leadership models in the West. And I'm thinking they're not going to work here. 
And I realized just from my own background is that leadership is not 80 years old. It's like 4,000, 5,000 years old, you know, and people were writing about leadership millennia ago. So I suddenly thought, you know, like gravity works anywhere in the world. I'm in Auburn and Suffolk as we talk. If I drop my pen in Auburn, it's going to hit the ground. But if I fly around to Melbourne in Australia, it's going to hit the ground. If I go to New York today, it's going to hit the ground. Gravity works everywhere. It's a principle. And I thought if I could distill the principles of leadership as opposed to kind of Western cultural adaptations, what are the timeless principles of leadership and somehow speak them into this context, it should work. That was my founding theory, if you like. And that's what gave birth to emerging leaders. And so the early years, I played Robin Hood. I literally would come back into London, earn a shed load of money, use that money, go back into Africa, and just test stuff out. Does this principle work? Does that work? How do you do this? And I made some stupid mistakes. I remember I was in Uganda with someone sitting under a tree. I had about 120 villages under a tree trying to teach them. And I, um, I was trying to give an example, and I was talking about Starbucks. <laughs> and Larissa, who was my minder, graceful, grace said to me, Trevor, these people have no idea what Starbucks is. And she said, not only that, they've never seen a coffee shop in their life. So I made some really stupid goofs, but the the secret is to learn quickly and humbly. And from then I learned whenever I was asked to go anyone, I said, before I do that, I said, I want to spend a day in your community before I ever talk to your community. I just want to walk around. And I would get the people who were bringing me in. I said, just walk me around. I want to talk to every smallholder trader on the street. I just want to hear from them. And I would gather their stories. And what I would do is I would dress the principles in all of the stories I heard from the villages or the people in the slums or the townships. Um, and, and they was just trying to work stuff out. I, and they were amazing years of trying to invent the program that is now established and running all over the world. But um, uh, just two examples. So one is the word proactive. Now, you're addressing people who probably never went to school ever. If they did, they'd finish school by about 11. So how do you take a principle like leadership is about being proactive mindset? How do you take that? And, and I thought, well, I could dump the word, but if you find out the other words, they don't really get the point. So I, I, I had to invent something. So in the end, what I did is I would get everybody up standing and I would get them to stand on their front foot like they were in a running race. And they get all your weight on your front foot. And then I said, right, put all your weight on your back foot. And we'd just go front foot, back foot. And they'd be repeating after me, front foot, back foot. And then I'd say, look, if you had to run a race and go really fast in any situation, should you be on your front foot or your back foot? And they said, oh, on your front foot. I said, great. And we would just build it up and we would do little races. And then I would do a thing where I got three people. I'd got someone, well, I'd be the third. I'd got a guy who would stand there and a, and a catcher to catch them. And I would say to the person, I said, now uh, get on your, put all your weight on your back foot. And if you put all your weight, and I took my little finger and I pushed them and they fell backwards. And I said, what do you notice? Know? Well, you know, it's easy to push them over. I said, it's really easy to push people over when they're on the back foot, isn't it? I said, now the guy, stand on your front foot, get on your front foot. So I pushed him with my little finger and he didn't move. Then I used two fingers, he didn't move. And then I used my hand, he didn't move. Then I used two hands, I didn't move. 
And then I'd say to the crowd, I said, well, so what do you learn from that? It's like, well, when you're on your front foot, people are immovable. It's like, yeah. Excellent. And yeah. then you would translate it into loads and loads of examples. I would just tell loads and loads of stories about, I, and I'd say to them, I said, um, imagine that your, your daughter is born this morning. And you go, okay. I said, when do you know that she'll want to go to college? And they said, what do you mean? And I said, when do you know? They said, well, she'll go to college when, you're 18, when she's 18. I said, but when do you know that she'll go to college when she's 18? They said, well, well, now we're telling you. And I said, yeah. So when do you start saving for your daughter to go to college? And I went, hmm. well, now. He said, yeah. I said, now that's what we call proactive. Reactive is you're going to wait till she's 18 and then you're going to say, we don't have any money, she can't go to college. I said, how many people in this community get malaria? Well, everybody. Okay, so what do you need to do when we need medicine? Can you afford medicine? No, we can never afford medicine. I said, when do you know you're going to get malaria? Well, we know now. So when do you start saving for the medicine? So we just start building all of these stories. The learning and the invention of stuff was amazing. And one other dimension was uh, in 2002, 11, the, the head of VegPro Kenya, now you won't know VegPro Kenya, but you will. If you buy flowers from Kenya, if you buy cut vegetables from Marks and Spencer's, Sainsbury's, all these places, VegPro is the company that does that, one of the big companies in Kenya that does that and sends it back over to the UK. And the head of operations called me and said, I've heard about the work you're doing in Africa. He said, well, can we talk? So I met him in London for Christmas and he said, look, we need what you're doing for our workers. Uh, we want to invest in them, in the pack houses and in the farms. And I said to him, I said, I don't do that. I said, I, I only go to places where people will never go. I said, if someone's involved in any kind of corporate world, in my mind, at least they've got a chance of getting something, some kind of input. I said, I want to go to the people who don't get any input. I said, I want to be in the slums, the townships and the villages. And he said to me, he said, no, you don't get it. He said, if you teach these people in the day, he said, by the night time, your teaching will be running through the slums. Yes. I thought, well, no, that's interesting. So I said, well, let's give it a go. And I did. I went and did a three-day pilot in, for VegPro in Kenya, in Nairobi. They brought in people from the pack house, the farms, all over. We had a great three days. And, and what I discovered is he was right. They did. By the next morning, they came back and they got stories. In fact, the whole of Kenya is now run by people who were reached by people who I taught in that first training, who went back that night and saw kids sitting on the street, jobless and hopeless, and said to them, guess what we've been learning today? And the kids listened and said, will you tell us more when you come back tomorrow? And they did. Beautiful. So the story grows, but what was... Uh, you will well know the funding issue is massive. And uh, that's what ground me down in the end. You know, I loved creating and pioneering and forging and creating the material and being in these places. I felt so honored to be where I've been in my life. And yet you end up being a fundraiser and uh, I'm, not, I'm not that good of it. And anyway, what happened was that was 2012. The summer of 2012, I get a phone call from Marks and Spencers, a wonderful lady who doesn't work there anymore called Sonia Thomas. She phoned me. We're on holiday in Italy, my wife and I. She said, we're in the slums of Nairobi right now. 
uh, what you don't know is we followed up on your training because we'd heard, you know, obviously they supplied Marks and Spencers. Marks and Spencers went and followed up on the training. She said, we're sitting in the slums in tears, listening oh. to the stories of the impact. We need to talk. And yes. that led into a major relationship that still continues today with Marks and Spencers, who were, uh, if the story of emerging leaders ever gets told, you know, that's going to be one of the big shout outs that Marks and Spencers actually very quietly, unknown to anyone else in the world, they took a punt on us because mm. they could see what it did. And it, it um, allowed emerging leaders to move to a whole other level. So by the time I handed over the leadership on the eve of lockdown uh, to a wonderful guy called Steve Miles, who's doing a brilliant job and continues to grow emerging leaders, uh, by the time I'd left, we'd been working in 16 countries. We trained about 85,000 people, and we knew it had an indirect impact on about 2.5 million people in terms of they could feed their families, get their kids to school. They had hope, and they were reinventing their, uh, their own futures. Well, yeah, let's give a shout out to Marks and Spencers because that is fantastic. And, uh, you know, I've sat in your training because our mutual friends, Tim and Maz Walker, they, they worked for Emerging Leaders and yes, uh, they came out did. to Burundi and did it. So I yes. know the front foot leadership thing. So oh, wonderful. Love that. Yeah. Great. Very good. Well, Tim and Maz are through Marks and Spencers. Um, we'd been training in Kenya and Marks and Spencers, and we were initially went in there and lived there for three months to really try a bed for Emerging Leaders in Kenya. Uh, and Marcus Ben said, look, will you go to South Africa? And they said, you're going to find this harder than anywhere else you've been. And I was like, well, okay, I've been to some pretty tough places. Anyway, so we flew out there and um, on the first day, Marcus and Spencer's got a conference with all of their suppliers in South Africa. So I spoke to the conference about what we were doing. And uh, our key person with Marcus and Spencer said, you've got to meet this You've got to meet Tim and Mads. You've got to meet these people. We just met them because we went and saw what they're doing up in Grabo, mm -hmm. which is kind of north of Cape Town and um, or north east of Cape Town. And um, you've got to meet this guy. So we met Tim, and um, and Tim heard me talk at the conference. And Tim said, "You've got to come to Grabo. We need you in Grabo." So we went and did a whole training in Grabo, and became great friends with Tim and Mads. And then they became trainers with emerging leaders. But it was interesting, just one quick story around that. So we're in South Africa, and when we get to South Africa, for us, South Africa is like being in San Francisco compared to being yeah. in Nairobi because, you know, the infrastructure in Cape Town was just brilliant. The roads actually worked, and, you know, everything was amazing. And they said, well, we'll take you into the townships. And we went to the townships, and they were toilets, like, well, we've not seen toilets in townships before, you know. Um, so from our mind, we're going, this is not as bad. This can't be as bad. But on the morning of the training, we arrived early to set the whole thing up. And um, uh, we came in, and they were already there, which never happens in Africa, that they were already there. But they were all there already waiting for us. But they were outside singing, and it was so haunting I mean, it was the songs of hopelessness. We didn't understand the coarser language, but the, we, we could hear hopelessness when we were listening, you know, and it was just, and I turned to my wife and I just said, we can't do what we've normally done. We, we, we have to start in a different place. This is an extremity of hopelessness that we've never encountered. 
And what was interesting was, and, and I always believed that what we were doing with emerging leaders was divinely created. And it took me years to be able to understand exactly how. And I eventually did, which is another story. And I always felt in those early years when the places that we were training in the middle of nowhere, at the end of it, I would always feel the hand of God on my shoulder, just saying, thank you. Proud of you. Thank you for being here. And you know, I can see the hand of God in this because before we got out to South Africa, we took a break and uh, we're in the middle of nowhere in Kenya, just having a break. And I had this intuitive feeling that something was missing. And I didn't know what it was. And I just sat there for a few days. And I thought, it just suddenly occurred to me. I thought, well, you know, Jesus spoke to people in extreme poverty. He wasn't speaking to people who were middle class, rich, whatevers. Most of his preaching were to people who were destitute. And I was thinking, okay, well, what did, how did he approach it? And I just sat there with the Sermon on the Mount and looked at it. And I thought, what are the principles underlying what Jesus was saying that teach us how to speak to people in abject poverty and hopelessness. And out of that distilled, and you'll know that if you've been through the training, there are, we talk about the seven poverty mindsets and the seven leadership mindsets. And I, I created that whole work sitting there, and no one ever knew it came from the Sermon on the Mount, but that's where it all came from, is mm. all of those principles. And so on that morning in South Africa, I said to Jane, I said, we've got to start with poverty thinking. I said, we've never tried it there. And my wife is a professional artist. And as I, so I just started talking about poverty mindsets and people lifted up their head and they were looking at me and they started nodding. It's like, yeah, that's us, that's us. Mm. And while I was talking, Jane just started drawing images. And I think her images actually were much better than my words, quite frankly. And that reshaped the whole training that day. Wonderful. Hey, listen, we are so, we've got so much more to cover. And actually, we've kind of run out of time, but I, I don't want to miss out on um, your eldership stuff. Right. So can you very condensed tell us about this chapter of your life, what that looks like? So very condensed chapter. Since a very young age, probably early 20s, I have been fascinated by the idea of eldership, even before I knew what it was. And I think maybe some of it was my encounter with church. I came into a church and I heard they were run by elders. And I looked at these people and I thought, I don't know what an elder is, but you aren't. You know, they hmm. were managers or they were administrators. Most of them weren't even leaders. And the only way I can describe it now is I looked at people and thought, you've not made the journey. You're trying to tell people about something that you've not done. And so an elder for me is someone who's made the journey. They have got a depth of wisdom and experience through their suffering and their pain that they they've been there and they know it and they can bring a level of wisdom, a higher order of question, a higher order of listening, a higher order of yeah, questioning and uh, speaking into people's lives because of the journey that, that they've made. And uh, I remember playing a party game in my early 20s where you had to write down the name of someone you wanted to be by the age of 80. And I knew instantly, I didn't need to even think about it. And I wrote down the name Paul Tournier. And most people won't even remember who Paul Tournier was. But Paul Tournier was a Swiss psychologist. He was a man of great faith. Um, and I just had this image of Paul Tournier sitting in front of his fire, one-on-one, -on -one, just being what I now understand was an elder. And I could see that image. And I just thought, that's who I want to be at 80. Uh, and it's carried me through my whole life. So actually, when I wrote my first book, 18 Challenges of Leadership, it then led me to, well, what do you do next? And 
they just led me to, you know, what lies beyond leadership. And of course, what lies beyond leadership is eldership. And we've lost that in the Western world. Society and has lost eldership. Yeah. Uh, Michael Mead says, you know, when a society abandons its elders, the elders abandon themselves. So we have a whole generation of people who don't know who they are. They're in midlife. They're coming to the peak of their working careers or they're retiring. They don't know who they are and what they're going because mm -hmm. our model is you work and you retire. Well, traditional cultures, it was never like that, is you were always mm. becoming an elder. Yeah. So that led to the next book I wrote, To Plant a Walnut Tree, where I explored it. Then I wrote another book called Becoming Mandela and just doing research on a third book. Because I, I just have a deep, deep sense of we've got to recover the elders. Yeah. We've got to find them yeah. again. So I, I'm, I'm trying to find how do we do that for people who are my peers, you know, the, the middle-aged into the aging, and I've also created a thing called the Youth Compass Project so that young people can aspire to eldership from their late teenage so that they can learn to use all of their life's experiences and all the mess and the failures and the upset, but with purpose, with meaning behind it, because there is a crisis of meaning in our culture. And it's like, how can young people know that whatever is happening is you can use it and turn it into amazing fodder that will make you a brilliant elder? in the yeah. latter half of your life. So that's in two seconds. Yeah, that's so... The subject so that I spend my life thinking about. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm excited. You've invited me away for a day in the woods to discuss yeah. um, eldership. And I want to be an elder. I want to maximise my life. And I think, you know, it's, it's such a waste, isn't it? We're not, we're and not you in, will be already, Simon, to yeah, many people. Yeah, but we're not into coasting in self-indulgence from retirement to the grave. That's certainly not a biblical concept. And there's no. so, many people, so many people will be listening to this and like, you have got so much more to offer. Don't stop. Don't give up. Don't tone oh, things down. Oh, listen, don't get me started. So much I look at people, I go, like what you are the most experienced leader I know, and what you contain in the thumbnail on your finger would change the life of a young entrepreneur in Senegal who's just trying to make a, a start in a small business. Yeah. And it grieves oh. me to see the waste. And it's an invention, you know, retirement, as we know, is an invention. It was an economic invention. In France and uh, and I think America at one point is is it was done for economic reasons, so yeah. we need to get back to and uh, recover this. I think. Mm. Oh. Well, Trevor, I mean, I love that. Two and a half million people impacted through eighty-five thousand people being trained. I'm one of them. Um, and, and that was back in 2021. The story goes on. Yeah, yeah, exponential growth, no doubt, with lots of Tim and Mazes out there sharing the yes. training further and wider. Listen, uh, we have run out of time. What what people can go and see your website. What do you want to plug? Well, if you're interested in eldership, uh, buy a copy of To Plant a Walnut Tree and Becoming Mandela. If you're interested mm -hmm. in young people on that regard, the website is uh, www.youthcompass.com. Go on there, sign up, get your young people involved in that. Uh, and I've just published last week's just come out. My latest book is called We Don't Do God dot 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 question mark. And I'm trying to address the culture Again, it's it's the unchurched evangelist in me, I guess. Not evangelist, yeah. that's the wrong word. But the person yeah. in me that's saying, look, what about people who've either given up on their faith because they don't want to do church or loads of people I meet who don't want to do formal religion, but they don't know how to begin a spiritual journey. Um, mm. And um, so that book explores that and that's you can get through that through Amazon on your Kindle or a paperback copy. Brilliant. 
my little, I put all that in the blurb. Great. Uh, TrevorWaldock.net. Guys, go and check that out. Listen, Trevor, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk, Simon. It's always a pleasure. Oh, well, thanks so much, Trevor. I've been totally inspired and encouraged, and I hope we've been stirred. And uh, if you've loved it, please give us a, a good review, great review on Spotify, iTunes, and get in touch with Trevor. Get in touch with me on SimonGilbert.com. And I want to thank Adam Thomas Steer for the editing and Mike Sanderman for the mixing. Next week, we've got another fantastic guest. So have a good time in the meantime. God bless you and toodaloo.